In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Once upon a time, when I was younger and far more foolish, I traveled to Alaska to visit a friend who was working for the summer as a fishing guide. At the airport on the way in, I read in the paper about a guy getting dragged out of his tent and mauled by a grizzly bear in the Russian River Valley. That didn't stop me from deciding to head up the Russian River Valley by myself for several days of backpacking and fly fishing. My friend told me this was a bad idea and that if I were going to go, I would at least need a bell to make noise, a canister of bear spray, and a shotgun. I had a bell. I decided that would be enough. And it was, just barely. The last night I was out, a large grizzly emerged from the woods on the other side of the river from where I was camped. We eyed each other. As I retreated toward my tent, it waded across the river right toward me. Throughout the night, I heard it stomping around nearby. It left me alone but I was pretty rattled by the time I ventured out in the morning and left the valley. Now, I had been warned plenty. I ignored the warnings, and I barely got away with it. The problem, as I recall, was that it was hard to envision the reality of the danger I was being warned against. Grizzly bears seemed somehow mythical, or at least like something one watches only on nature shows. And I tell you this story about my foolish youth only to confess that I feel a similar difficulty envisioning the reality of the danger St. Paul is warning all of us against in our reading from Ephesians today. The schemes of the devil, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I am warned about why I should feel this difficulty. C.S. Lewis's fictional demon, Screwtape, writes on Hell's behalf that our policy for the moment is to conceal our existence. Likewise, Kaiser Suzy in the neo-noir film The Usual Suspects memorably and creepily says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was persuading the world he didn't exist. I hear these warnings, yet I still find it hard to believe that I need all of the armor Paul lists to protect me from unseen, personal, spiritual, malevolent forces that wish to destroy me. I fear that hell's concealment policy is working on me pretty well. Screwtape adds that Hell's policy hasn't always been so. Indeed, he writes with regret that when humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism. I'm told by people I know and trust from other parts of the world that there are places today where Hell's policy is still one of direct terrorism. I trust what I read from saints of the past, recounting open, overt attacks from these spiritual forces in their day. 
Paul himself clearly believed that he could and did suffer oppression from these forces, as when he reports to the Corinthians a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan given to torment him, or when he tells his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica that Satan blocked his way from visiting them. Given all this testimony, I'm persuaded that it would be a mistake to demythologize Paul's warnings by interpreting the rulers and authorities and so forth that he mentions as just socio-political power structures or something like that, sinful and harmful though these may be. We know, of course, from the rest of the letter and from the book of Acts that the Church of Ephesus was struggling against social and political attacks stirred up by Demetrius the silversmith. But here, Paul is specifically telling us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Paul's military metaphors are not to be wielded against our fellow men. So what sort of struggle is it exactly? What threat are we being warned of? And what is our protection against it? I find some useful initial answers to these questions in the dialogue of St. Catherine of Siena, one of the saints of the past I just mentioned, who had no difficulty at all believing in the reality of the spiritual forces arrayed against her. The dialogue is between herself and God and she has God saying the following, my justice has made the devil my executioner to torment the souls who have wretchedly offended me. And I have appointed the demons to tempt and trouble my creatures in this life. Not that I want my creatures to be conquered, but I want them to conquer and receive from me the glory of victory when they have proved their virtue. No one, need fear any battle or temptation of the devil that may come, for I have made you strong and given your wills power in the blood of my son. Neither the devil nor any other creature can change the will of yours, for it is yours, given by me with the power of free choice. It is a weapon that as soon as you put it into the devil's hands, becomes a knife with which he pursues and kills you. But if you refuse to put this weapon, the will, into the devil's hands, you will never be hurt in any temptation by the guilt of sin. Indeed, temptation will strengthen you, provided you open your mind's eye to see my charity, which lets you be tempted only to bring you to virtue and to prove your virtue. Like that of many medieval mystics, Catherine's language can be graphic and sometimes shocking. For instance, she describes Christ as our wet nurse, drinking for us and giving through his breasts the bitter medicine that we ourselves couldn't swallow so as to drain the deadly pus oozing from the wound of Adam's sin. God's calling the devil my executioner, appointed to torment, tempt, and trouble us in this life may sound shocking as well, 
But I take it Catherine makes this crucially important point. The devil and his minions only torment us insofar as God allows them to do so. Christ's triumph over Satan is a pervasive theme in Paul's writings, and so too is our triumph through Christ and in Christ. In Ephesians, we find both these themes. Paul says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. As for us, he says, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. I think Catherine is right to say that God allows demons to tempt and trouble only to bring us to virtue and prove our virtue. Also, that we needn't fear any battle or temptation of the devil, except insofar as he might lead us from virtue. The demons, as she says, cannot move our wills. But the life of virtue is hard enough on its own. And Paul and Catherine are also right to warn that demonic temptations can make it even harder. Our readings today taken together illustrate one reason why it is so difficult. Beginning with Deuteronomy 4, we find Moses issuing instructions to the assembled Israelites about to enter the promised land. He's handed them all these statutes and rules as God commanded him, and he says, listen to these and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. He says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. But at the end of our reading, he gives this warning. Take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart. The people are getting the rules and statutes so that they might live and live together and live together with God in the land he is giving them. Keeping these rules will be their wisdom and understanding. Crucially, though, the mere having of the rules doesn't remove their urgent need to take care and keep their souls diligently, lest they forget what their eyes have seen, the living testimony of their intimate relation to God and all that he has done for them. With that in mind, our gospel reading today offers a scathing portrait of what it looks like to fail utterly to heed Moses' warning about keeping our souls diligently. The Pharisees stringently observed the rules and statutes of the law, or at least gave the appearance of doing so. But Jesus excoriates them for utterly failing to cultivate the character 
of persons able to live in God's presence. He quotes Isaiah, this people's heart is far from me. And that, I would say, is precisely what we have to fear from the devil and his minions. That is what Paul is warning us of in Ephesians, that our hearts would end up far from God. Paul's words in verse 12 about this present darkness should remind us of his repeated mentions of darkness earlier in the letter to signify precisely a state of hardness of heart and alienation from God. Here's chapter 4, verse 18, for example. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. The demons are not grizzly bears dragging folks from their tents. And whatever hardships they might inflict on our bodies are not ultimately what should frighten us. Being seduced into separation from the life of God, though, that is a fearsome worry indeed. So how do we protect ourselves? by putting on the armor of God. If I am right, and Catherine is right, that what we are pursuing is virtue, the sort of character that enables us to live with God and with one another, then putting on this armor is no simple matter. Consider just the first piece of equipment Paul lists, the belt of truth. Fasten this on, he says. What does it mean to do this? A simple answer might be, to prize and practice honesty. But to be truly honest, as the ethicist Rosalind Hershouse points out, is complex and multifaceted. To speak truth in your heart, as Psalm 15 says, involves deeds like these. Hastening to correct a false impression. Owning up immediately without waiting to see if you're going to be found out giving voice to the truth everyone fears to utter, making sure people understand what they're signing or agreeing to do for you. It also involves feelings like being unresentful of honest criticism, not being amused by certain tales of chicanery, being distressed when those near and dear to us are dishonest, and so forth. This list could easily be made a lot longer packed with specific details that we would or should immediately recognize. The list is so long, in fact, that it couldn't possibly be captured in any rule or law like don't lie or don't cheat. As Hursthouse points out, I can refrain from lies or cheating while still being dishonestly economical with the truth. Yet the rule don't be economical with the truth, always tell it, doesn't capture the spirit of honesty either, but rather something like brutal frankness or ingenuousness. So even putting on the first piece of armor is sure to be difficult. No accumulation of rules or statutes about truth or honesty 
can possibly replace our need to keep our souls diligently, as Moses warns, to make sure we don't end up like the Pharisees, honoring God with our lips while our hearts drift far from him. So let me say four things I'm encouraged by in closing when it comes to putting on God's armor. First and second, the verbs Paul uses, be empowered in the Lord, put on the complete armor of God, receive the helmet of salvation. All of these are passive and plural. Commentators stress that despite the passive voice of these verbs, Paul's rhetoric clearly indicates that we are not mere bystanders in the process. We are involved. Nevertheless, it is ultimately God who empowers us, who armors us, and from whom we receive salvation. That I find encouraging. Furthermore, Putting on the armor of God is not an individual matter, but a corporate one. Our passage today, read in context, is an extension of Paul's instructions to the Ephesians from the beginning of chapter 4 onwards about the communal life of the church. The message, then, is that we are not alone in our struggle for virtue and against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, reflecting upon the state of our parish, of our diocese, of really any other church these days, you might be tempted to find the plural nature of Paul's instructions less encouraging than I'm making them out to be. As a body, you might think, we're struggling. And so if it's really as a body that Paul is urging us to take up the armor of God, we might worry that at best, fastening the belt of truth and so forth is going to get put in the hands of some committee that will be deliberating for months while the cosmic powers wreak havoc. That's a legit worry, and I won't downplay it. But a third point of encouragement, harking again back to St. Catherine, is that things have been worse and God has nonetheless brought his people through. Catherine wrote during a period in the church's history called the Babylonian Captivity, during which time you had a pope in Rome, another in Avignon in France, and sometimes a third pope in Pisa, each excommunicating one another and backed by geopolitical rivals. You think the Anglican communion's politics are in a bad way, here is how God describes the church in Catherine's dialogue. Look how my bride has disfigured her face. She is leprous with impurity and selfishness. Her breasts are swollen because of the pride and avarice of those who feed there. I am speaking of my ministers who feed at her breasts. Do you see how ignorantly and blindly they serve out the marvelous milk and blood of this bride? how thanklessly, and with what filthy hands, and so forth. It gets even worse. Catherine had no illusions about the personal sanctity of the church's leadership in her day, and yet she tirelessly and ceaselessly 
poured herself out in prayer for these prideful, vainal, blind, and ignorant folks. And this is the last thing I find encouraging. Paul's whole point about putting on the armor of God can, in a sense, be summarized by his words at the end. Pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert with perseverance and pray, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. The repetition here, prayer, supplication, prayer, supplication, is an obvious rhetorical ploy. That, Paul is saying, is how we begin to put on God's armor. Catherine has God say, your prayers and weeping have power over me, and the pain in your desire binds me like a chain. I don't know how I or we should feel about the idea of God being bound by our prayers, but Catherine's sentiment is surely right. God is faithful. He will answer. And empowered in the strength of his might, we need fear nothing in this present darkness. Amen. Amen.